As we stated earlier tonight, we'll be looking in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Last message, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we read the story of Nabal and Abigail and David's interaction with this family. We know that Nabal was a very wicked man, and in the end, the Lord struck him dead, and Abigail became David's wife. In that chapter, Nathan is mentioned about Saul, the king of Israel. In the previous chapter, chapter 24, we find where Saul was pursuing David. And this is the, the chapter records the events where David had hid in a cave. And there were just multiple caves in that particular region. And just so happened that Saul left his army and went into that cave to take care of personal business. And in the end, fell asleep. We find where David's men viewed this as God handing Saul to David on a platter, so to speak, and that they, you know, and urged David to take the life of Saul and end Saul's pursuit of him. But David, being a man of integrity, would not touch the Lord's anointed. He refused to listen to his men. He was victorious of a great temptation to do so. From a human perspective, you could hardly blame David from doing that. But David also knew the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, we find where the Lord said, Thou shalt not kill. And that's exactly what would have been taking place if David had taken the life of Saul. Now, that chapter ends by saying Saul went home. And he went home after an interaction with David in which it appeared that he no longer would pursue David. And he went home. And then chapter 25 gives us a break from all of that. Now chapter 26, we're going to find where Saul is going to resume his pursuit of David. And notice how it comes about. We notice in the beginning of chapter 26, where it says, And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hills of Hachilah, which is before Jeshalon? Now this is the second time these people known as the Ziphites have done this. And these are Jewish people. They're the tribe of Judah. And they're also related to Caleb, just like Nabal was. If you go back to chapter 23, you'll read where they came to Saul when David was in the same area and told Saul he was in that area. And not only that, but they said, our part will be to deliver him into your hands. Obviously, they were playing up to Saul. They knew what Saul had done to the priesthood Earlier, when he, you know, charged them with aiding David, he slew all of them. And so they are taking the side of Saul. Now, sometime later, once again, another time, the second time, they are going to come to Saul and tell Saul that David is hiding in that general area. And this brings Saul back out. This brings Saul back out from where he was at his home. We find it brought out of Saul again, the evil spirit of, of um, you know, that he had in pursuing David, trying to take the life of David. And this is what Saul had wanted to do all along. And so Saul gets his 3,000 chosen men, and he comes to that area to try to find uh, David. He comes to seek David. We notice in verse 2 where it says, Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Zip, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Zip. 
So Saul's back to what he's been doing, had been doing for a pretty good long period of time. He'd been pursuing David all over that place, and we find that God had been continuously delivering David from the hand of Saul and all those experiences. Saul, you would have thought, would have recognized this, would abandon his efforts, but not so because he's being driven by envy. He's being driven by jealousy. Um, Raft is in his heart. He sees David as a threat, a threat to his kingdom, a threat to the crown, uh, a threat to his power and authority. And he's trying to eliminate that threat. Now, temporarily, he quit doing that. But now the Ziphites send word to him. We know where David's at. And it was just too much, apparently, for Saul to resist. So he gets his 3,000 men back out again. And he's back pursuing David and seeking David. In the next verses, we'll find where he pitched in the hill of Hachala. And uh, this is going to be very similar to what we read in verse Samuel chapter 24, in a sense. But there are some, well, there's some similarities. There are some contrasts. We might say more about that a little bit later. But we're going to find where David is going to be faced again with a great temptation. Now David has spies, and David's spies come to him and say, Yes, Saul and his 3,000 men are coming. Uh, They're getting closer. And they tell David exactly where Saul and his 3,000 men were at. Now David is going to demonstrate great courage and boldness in the Lord. He's going to do something here that was very, very dangerous. Now David approaches two men, and after he beholds where Saul is laying, and, uh, and the whole army, he's going to approach two men and ask one of them, or ask them both, which one will go with him. Now, one of them is a Hittite, which is probably a Jewish proselyte, and then we find the other one is a man who's actually David's nephew, and he's the one who volunteers, says, I'll go with you. His name is Abishai. So David and Abishai are going to go down into the valley, where Saul and his men are at, remember he has 3,000 of them, and that's just David and his nephew, just two of them, and they're going to go down to the camp. We notice in verse 7, So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, David lay sleeping within the trench, excuse me, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck in the ground at his bolster. But Abner and the people lay round about him. Now, Abner has so little respect for David that he doesn't even have a sentinel. He doesn't even have any guards around to be sure that nobody approaches the camp. I guess he felt secure having 3,000 soldiers along there with Saul. But they're all asleep. And here's one of the most amazing things uh, you're gonna, I think you're going to read in the Scriptures. David and his nephew are going to go into the camp And Saul's in the center of it. They got to bypass all these men who are laying around asleep. And they're going to go into that camp. And he's going to get Saul's spear and a cruise of order and bring it out of there. Now, we'll see how that happened in just a minute or two. Now, when he gets down there, his nephew Abishai is going to say to him, The Lord has delivered thine enemy into thy hands. Won't you notice how Abishai viewed Saul? He saw Saul as an enemy. David never did. Miraculously, David never saw Saul as an enemy. He always saw Saul as the anointed of the Lord. He always spoke respectfully to Saul when he spoke to him. Now, when Abishai asks David or tells David that the Lord has delivered him, notice in verse 8, 
Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. Just give me the green light, I'll take care of him. Just give me the green light. I don't need two chances. Just one opportunity is all I need. I'll slay him with one strike, and that'll be it. Now, we notice in contrast to chapter 24, when David was in the cave. And again, what do you think the probability is, and the chances from a human perspective, that Saul would choose the very cave that David and his men were hiding in? There were numerous caves in that area. Now, either God directed Saul to the cave where David was at, or he directed David and his men to be in the cave where Saul was going to come to. One way or the other, God was in that arrangement providentially. And God did deliver Saul into the hands of David on both occasions, but not for David to slay him. That's not why David delivered him. In chapter 24, we find where the men speak to David, basically saying, David, you could slay him. But here, David's nephew says, I'll do it. I'll slay him. Maybe he was thinking about that previous occasion where he thought, well, maybe I can understand why David won't do it, but if he'll just give me the green light, maybe he'll let me do it. I'll slay him, and I don't need two chances at it. <laughs> one, one is all I need. That's what Abishai told him. But David said to Abishai, notice two things. Verse 9, destroy him not. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed to be guiltless? Now, I haven't counted these, uh, but there's numerous times in this chapter where David's going to refer to Saul as the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed. Remember, Abishai saw him as an enemy. David saw him as the Lord's anointed. So he says, if you slay the Lord's anointed, you will not be guiltless, which means you'll be guilty. It'll be a, a sinful act if you take the life of Saul. Number one. Then number two. David said, furthermore, he continues his statement, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. He says there are three things that will happen. One of these three things will happen to Saul. The Lord will smite him. Now remember in chapter 25, how did Nabal die? The Bible says God struck him dead. That doesn't sound like the God of love that so many people try to present out here in general, does it? Now, God is a God of love, that's for sure. In fact, this is where true love originated. It comes down from heaven, it comes from God. But God is also a God of judgment. And the Bible is filled with illustrations, examples, where God smote people. And the Bible plainly says that God struck Nabal dead. David knew that. So he says... He may die from the standpoint, God will just strike him dead. Or his day shall come to die. He may just die of natural causes. You know, a good friend of mine in Florida many years ago, he says there's more ways to die than you keep from it. <laughs> I thought there's quite a bit of wisdom in that. And I heard the other day a man said, you know, he said, if, if you don't get killed, you'll just up and die anyway. <laughs> so I guess that's true too. You know, so that's basically what he's saying here. He says, he'll just simply die of natural causes. Or number three, he shall descend into battle and perish. Now, if you're a Bible reader and already read ahead or you've read it in the past, you know that's exactly what's going to happen to Saul. He's going to perish. He's going to perish in battle. Here's three ways David says, this man will die. We're not going to take his life. That matter was settled back in 1 Samuel chapter 24. David settled it back then. 
David acted on principle and not passion. He acted on principle and not emotion. He acted on principle and not circumstances. Now, when you look at the circumstances, both chapter 24 and chapter 26, from a human perspective, it looks just like, again, God delivered him right into his hands, and he did. But he didn't deliver him in his hands again to slay him. David understood that. David is a man of integrity. He's a man of principle. Now, it was a great temptation. You know it had to be. David lived in, uh, instead of David being able to live in a home just like we live in, he'd been living in the wilderness for a number of years. Instead of David knowing that God had, had showed unto him, and in the previous chapter through the testimony of Abigail, David had been reassured that he would be the king of Israel one day. Instead of living in the palace in the kingdom there, he's out there living in caves and dens and hiding in all kinds of places. Uh, he's living a very rough life, to say the least. And he's being pursued by Saul, who wants to take his life. That's the kind of life David is living. But David says, this man can, will die one of these three ways. He's the Lord's anointed. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take now thou the spear that says bolster and the cruise of order, and let us go. So David took the spear and the cruise of order from Saul's bolster, and they got them away, and no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awaked. Now, how do you think that happened? Well, it's going to tell us here, but how do you think that took place? How can two men like that go in the midst of a camp with three, Saul and 3,000 men, and, they go, and they got a, they're having a conversation here. They're talking. Most of the time you think, now, shh, you can't say a word. We've got to be real quiet. David and Abishai are having a conversation. And David says, just take his spear, which is symbolic of his authority and power, and his cruise of order. Just take that. See what David did take, what didn't David take? David did not take his life. Either time, chapter 24, chapter 26, David did not take his life, but he did take something. What did he take in chapter 24? Well, he cut off part of his robe, right? That's what he took. And that was the evidence he presented to Saul that if I had wanted to, I could have slew you. If I had wanted to, I could have took your life, but I didn't do it. Now he's going to take two things here to show him just a little bit later on the same thing. So now they get out of there. And they go to a hill at a distance. They're far enough away to be safe, so to speak, but close enough where David can speak in a loud voice and be heard. But let's notice how this all came about. Because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. It's really interesting to, to, if you just take note. In fact, I, I think I'm going to try to uh, make a long list. Now, it, it, I know it'll be a long list. Of all the different ways, out of the ordinary ways, unusual ways, unique ways, that God has delivered his people down through the ages. I remember where he delivered Israel from one battle by causing the enemy to hear noise of a great army when there was no army to make it. God just created a noise. Here, he brings a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon the people. Notice how that expressed had fallen upon the people. It's like the general rain falls upon the earth. The dew falls upon the earth, right? When God sends these blessings, it just falls from the earth. How many times have you used expression like that? You say, well, 
uh, we having a gentle rain just falling from the sky, whatever, you know, just, just falling upon it. A deep sleep fell upon them. It didn't say a deep sleep came upon them. That'd be true. But it fell upon them. It came from the hand of God. This is the third time that that expression is used. Or oh, there's three examples of where something, a deep sleep fell upon somebody when God was about to do something. The first time is in Genesis chapter 2. When God created man from the dust of the earth, of course, Adam, the Bible says God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. What's he about to do to Adam? He's about to take a rib out of Adam's side. He's going to do surgery on Adam. <laughs> Since there was not a, a the, an, an anesthesiologist around, God just takes care of it. God calls it a deep sleep to come upon him. You know, <laughs> that's, that's what you do when you have surgery. They put you to sleep, right? They put you to sleep because you don't want to feel pain. You don't know anything that's going on about it, whatever. Some people call it joy juice. But anyway, they put you in a deep sleep. God put Adam in a deep sleep because he's about to do surgery on him. And he takes a rib out of his side and makes a woman. And then he brings her to the man and presents her to him as his wife. The second time you find where God calls a deep sleep to come upon somebody is in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, you're going to find where God is speaking to Abraham. That chapter opens up by God speaking to Abraham and says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abraham had just came back from a battle in which he had rescued Lot and, and all his family possessions, etc. And uh, he, not only Lot, but the other, other kings of, that, of the region. And God comes to him and tells him two things that he is to him. He says, I am thy shield, your protection. And thy exceeding great reward. Remember, Abraham didn't take anything from the battle. He just stepped on up to feed his men. That's all he took. And he was, he was entitled to take everything. But Abraham didn't go out to that battle to do that. He went out there to rescue his nephew. So God reminds him, I'm your exceeding great reward. You did well, in other words. And he promises Abraham a seed. And Abraham says, well, I, I have no child. I only have... You know, it'd have to be through my steward, Elias. He said, no, no, it's not going to be through him. It's going to be through you and Sarah. You're going, to have a, you're going to have a child. And so we find where he tells Abraham, he says, I brought you out of, uh, out of the land, the earth of Chaldees, into this land right here, this land, the land of Canaan that you're in, to give it to you and to your seed. And Abraham says, well, how shall that be? And here's what the Lord told him. He says, you, did, uh, you go get three heifers, three she-goats, and three rams, and a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And you're to slay these animals. There's to be a sacrifice made here. And you're to lay them aside. Now, the turtle dove and the pigeon was not divided in half. The other ones were divided in half. Just like right here, there was a, a path right between them. He then tells Abraham, he says, when the sun went down and darkness came, he said unto Abraham, know of a surety. Now when God says know of a surety, that means it's, it's coming to pass. There can be no question about it. God has put his seal of surety upon this. That's why we like to quote oftentimes from 2 Timothy 2.19, the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Aren't you glad about that? 
that tells me somebody belongs to God that's referred to as his, right? He shall save his people from their sins. The foundation of God stands sure having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. If you listen to the religious world out here, they present a God who's still totally unsure uh, how many people he's going to have in his family, who they all are. It will not be known until the end of time, all this kind of stuff. I'm telling you that God knows those that are his, and he's known those that are his since before the foundation of the world. That's when he chose them, he elected them, he predestinated them, he named them and gave them to his son. The foundation of God, what stands sure, having this seal. This is a seal that declared to you that stands sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Know of a surety, thy seed shall be, in a strange, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. They'll be there 430 years. They'll live in a land of affliction. They shall suffer affliction for 430 years. But he says... I will judge that nation and I'll bring them out and they shall come out with great substance. And then a deep sleep came upon Abraham. A deep sleep. The sun went down. There was great darkness and a deep sleep. Not just a sleep now. It's a deep sleep. Came upon Abraham. And the Lord spoke to him. And he had a, a vision here where a burning furnace went first between those slain animals. And then you find a, a smoking furnace. And then a burning lamp fathered. When you read the word furnace in the Bible, it's um, symbolic of affliction. If you read in Deuteronomy 4 and 20, you'll find where Moses said that God delivered you out of Egypt out of the iron furnace. He's giving him a picture of about that 430 years of afflictions. But also, not only is the smoking furnace, but the burning lamp goes through. And that's a picture of the presence of God. God's going to bring him out of there, you see. Now notice here, God didn't say unto Abraham, you know, I'll bring him out if you do this. There's no if, ands, or buts in this. And that's important because I show this is a covenant God made with Abraham. That's what I call unilateral. It's a one-sided covenant. It was not based on any kind of agreement that God made with Abraham. God didn't make an agreement with Abraham. He didn't say unto Abraham, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, I'll bring my people out of there after 430 years. It wasn't based upon what Abraham and his seed would do. It's simply based upon what God said he was going to do. He said, no of a surety. And he says, they'll be there for in 30 years, but know of a surety, they'll come out, and when they do, they'll come out with great substance. Now all this happened to Abraham when God brought a great sleep upon him. David and his nephew are able to go in that camp because a deep sleep <laughs> fell upon everybody in that camp. They didn't hear, they didn't see, they don't know anybody has been there. David and his nephew have been down there, got the cruise of water, they got the spear, they've come out of there, they've gone to a hill. Mission accomplished. And when they do, David then speaks loudly from the hill to all the people. Notice this. Verse 14. And David cried to the people and to Abner. Now, notice the separation of Abner from the people. He spoke to all the people, cried to the people, 
and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Answerest thou not Abner? He's speaking specifically to Abner now. Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou that cries to the king? You know, I think Abner knew who it was. Have you ever heard somebody say, Well, who are you to say something like that? Who are you to do that? That's what he's saying right here. Who are you? He knew who he was. And David said to Abner, Art thou not thou a valiant man? Yes. And who is like to thee in Israel? No one. Wherefore then hast thou not kept thy Lord the king? For there came one of the people. He didn't say himself. He said, There come one of the people in to destroy the king, my Lord. This thing is not good that thou hast done. It's like almost David is really upset at Abner for not taking better care of the Lord's anointed. Even though the Lord's anointed is Saul who's trying to kill David. As the Lord liveth, you are worthy to die. Because you've not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. How many times have I already said the Lord's anointed here tonight already? And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of order. Those at his bolster. Take a look. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, O Lord, O King, my Lord, O King. Pay good attention to the words that David uses in speaking to Saul. Very respectful. Refers to him as Saul's servant. Refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. Refers to Saul as the king of Israel. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? That he could address Saul in such a manner and way. So that, that speaks tremendously to the character of David. And he said, wherefore doth my Lord... I want you to notice three questions that David asked Saul of which Saul has no answer. And he said, Wherefore doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? And what evil is in mine hand? David can't, Saul can't answer those, because there was no evil in the hand of David. He'd done nothing contrary to the king's law, the king's command. He'd been a friend of the king, a friend of the kingdom. He'd been a blessing to the kingdom. Saul can't answer these three questions. Now this reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ who oftentimes answered questions with questions. Remember over here in Matthew chapter 22 the Sadducees asked the Lord a question. So there was a woman's husband who died. Didn't have any children. She married her brother, his brother. He died, no children. This goes on to where she married seven different men. Then in the resurrection, whose husband shall she have? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but they asked a question about the resurrection. Whose husband shall she have in the resurrection? And the Lord tells them, he says, Thou errest not knowing the power of God or the word of God. He said, because the word of God teaches that God appeared unto Moses in the burning bush and said unto Moses, I'm not the God of the dead, but I'm the God of the living of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If the Sadducees had been knowledgeable about that verse of Scripture, they wouldn't have asked that question. He says, you do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And I'd say that's why I've erred as much as I have in life, but simply not knowing the Scriptures, what the Scriptures would teach. That's how, why most of God's people err. They're, they're not informed about what the Word of God teaches. And that's why the Sadducees did. And the Bible says that the Sadducees were silenced. 
when the Pharisees knew that the Sadducees had been silenced. Jesus silenced the Sadducees just like David silenced Saul. There's no response from Saul. He has no answer. He asked him three questions. Saul cannot answer the three questions. He has no answer for it without incriminating himself. And then the Lord asked those Pharisees this question. What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, he's the son of David. He said, if he's the son of David, why does David in spirit then call him Lord? He was the son of David, but they were only, only acknowledging his humanity and not his divinity, you see. The son of David. Well, if he's the son of David, why does David in spirit call him Lord? He's quoting from Psalms 110. In other words, David would never acknowledge him as Lord if he was just the son of David, if that's all it was to it. But he says, my Lord, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, thou shalt set down my right hand to make all thine enemies thy footstool. Now the Lord Jesus Christ brings his divinity into the picture. And then the Bible says, from that moment forward, they durst not ask him any more questions. The Lord put them in silence. David asked Saul three questions of which Saul does not answer. He had no answer. He knew what David asked him was true. So I believe there's a pause here between verse 18 and 19. Verse 19, Now therefore I pray thee, let my lord the king, notice the line, my lord the king, hear the words of his servant. He acknowledges he's the servant. If the Lord hath stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. If you believe that the Lord has stirred you up against me for some reason, then let the Lord, you know, accept an offering here. But if they be the children of men, that means those that are around Saul, cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. It's either one way or the other. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, if that's not the case, then there's people around you who've been telling lies about me. Verse 20. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel is come out to seek a flea as when one doth hunt, hunt a partridge in the mountains. That partridge is a bird that's innocent. He said, you've been, trying, you've been pursuing an innocent man. Just like a hunter would, would be pursuing this bird. That bird is innocent. That bird has done nothing to the hunter. That bird has to fly for safety, has to fly for deliverance. You've been hunting me as a hunter would hunt that bird. That's what he's saying there. Then said Saul, three things Saul says. I have sinned. Return my son David and I will no more do thee harm. I think David's heard that before. Because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. It was. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. He says, I've sinned, I've played the fool, and I've erred exceedingly. Three things he said. Now, on the surface, words only, that sounds like a pretty good confession, doesn't it? It does. But he's made confessions like this before. He's never kept them. He's never proved to be a truthful, honest person. David doesn't have any confidence in it, and we'll see that in just a moment. But you know, this is the first time in the Bible the word fool is used. I, I was surprised when I found that out. I'd have thought it had been used 
probably multiple times. Probably. But this is the first time in the Bible the word fool is used, but by far not the last. How many chapters in the book of Proverbs? 31. Who wrote the book of Proverbs? Solomon. Who's to be the wisest man who's ever lived? Solomon. What's the opposite of a fool? A wise man, right? So he writes 31 chapters in Proverbs in which he refers to a fool 41 times. 41 references in the book of Proverbs to a fool. Remember that man in, over in the book of Luke? That farmer who had a bumper crop? And he said, I got a problem. I don't have enough barn space to put all my crop. He said, I guess I just have to tear down my barns and build new barns, larger barns or whatever, and so I can uh, handle all my crop, one thing or another. You notice in all that, he never asked God, never prayed to God. It was all about me. I, I, I. He says, then I'll be able to say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. You know what the Lord called him? Call him a fool. What does the Bible call a person who says there is no God? Twice. Psalms 14, 1, Psalms 53, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, Saul knows there's a God. But he says, I have played the fool. I have sinned, I have erred exceedingly. David answered, said, behold the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. Now, Saul has just given David an opportunity to come home. He says, come on, I'll do you no harm. David doesn't believe him. For good reason. <laughs> in other words, David's not going to take that spear and cruise of water and take it back to Saul in the camp. He's not going to do that. He's too wise for that. He said, just send one of your men over here, and I'll let him have it. I'll let him have it. Then I want you to notice what David says. Verse 23. The Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand this day, today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. What, what is David saying here? He's saying what Abraham said when he asked this question in Genesis chapter 18, will not the judge of all the earth do right? David is saying God will judge every man's action. He'll judge every man's work and he'll render every man concerning his righteousness and his faithfulness. He's putting his case in the hands of God. He said God will be the judge. He'll judge between you and me, Saul. And then he says... And notice what he doesn't say. And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, he does not say, so let my life be much set by in your eyes. What do you think would have happened if this situation we're talking about had been reversed? What if Saul had come upon David asleep? What do you think would have happened? I don't think there's much doubt, is it? What would have happened? So he doesn't say, you know, let my life be in your eyes, he says, in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. When you come to 2 Samuel chapter 22, the opening verses, 
You read where it says, And David spake these words unto the Lord, the, the words of this song. The Lord who hath delivered me from out of the hand of all mine enemies and the hand of Saul. Now this is toward the end of the life of David. David knew God had delivered him out of the, out of the you know, the Paul, the bearing the Paul of the line. He knew God had delivered him numerous times in battles of the Philistines. He knew God had delivered him in the hand of Goliath. And he delivered him from the hand of Saul. But notice how he separates Saul from all of his enemies. God who delivered me out of the hand of all mine enemies and the hand of Saul. Even then, David doesn't address Saul as an enemy. What? what? It's kind of like Stephen being stoned to death and praying to the Lord for those who stoned him to death. Amazing, isn't it? I want to, well, let's look at verse 25. Now, before I read this, and you read it with me, this is the last time David and Saul ever see each other. This is the last time Saul ever speaks to David. This man who has hunted him and pursued him for several years, all over that whole country, who personally, and remember when David, what did he take while he took Saul's spear? What, what, what did Saul do with that spear? He threw it at David at least three times, I can count, trying to kill him. These are the last words that Saul will ever say to David. And it's going to be words of blessing. Then said Saul to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way. And Saul returned to his place. From this moment forward, Saul's life will go spiraling downward more and more and more. And we'll get to it a little bit later on, but Saul will be slain on the battlefield. David's life will go upward and upward and upward. David will be placed upon the throne of Israel where he will serve as king of Israel for 40 years. Saul returned to his place. David went on his way. They will never see each other again. A quick summary of comparison between 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26. In 1 Samuel 24, we find where David and Saul, you know, meet in a cave. In chapter 26, we find where they meet in a valley. In chapter 24, it's Saul who comes to the cave where David's at. In 26, it's David who goes down to where Saul is at. In chapter 26, David takes a, a very strong, bold step in doing that. That's not there in chapter 24. In chapter 24, we find where David cut off part of Saul's skirt to show Saul that he could have took his life. In chapter 26, we find where David took his spear and his cruise of water and took it to the top of the hill and showed the whole army and Saul and Abner. I've been down in the camp. I've been right there beside Saul. While you all were sleeping, and Abner, you're worthy of death because you're his bodyguard, you're his general, and you didn't take care of him. 
He could have been slain right there and you wouldn't have known anything about it. You didn't have any guards posted. Nobody to keep watch. I mean, he's scolding Abner, isn't he? He's scolding him. That's the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel, and you didn't do your job, Abner. In chapter 24, he only spoke to Saul. In chapter 26, he speaks to Saul and to Abner and the people. In both cases, he could have slew Saul, but he didn't do it. And this chapter ends similar to the way chapter 24 ended. There it says, and Saul returned home. And David and his men got into the hole, that is, into hiding places. And chapter 26 ends by saying David went on his way. And I believe it was the good way. The Bible says, there is a way that seemeth right unto man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. That's Saul's way. It led to death. There was ever a verse that characterized a man in the Bible. You could say, here's a man which that verse just describes from A to Z is Saul. But also tells us when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. And that described David. These two, these two verses out of the 14th and 16th chapter of Proverbs describes these two men in the opposite directions, the opposite ways in which they went. The Lord willing, next time we'll go to 1 Samuel chapter 27.